You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 12. Today, we are in Córdoba. I, I don't gather that it rains here very often, so I think the roads are a bit dirty. I also heard something that 25% of the olive trees in the world are in this area. 20. 20%, okay. Well, we open tonight's episode with Joe Dombrowski and a live corrections corner, Danny Friberico, um, out there in Spain. Hello, Daniel Freib. You are you were correcting Joe and his olive tree statistic. Well, I was correcting him, Richard, fairly confidently, fairly confidently, and we've had more various other statistics to embellish and add to what I mentioned last night about Jaén, the province of Jaén's um, olive oil that um, it accounts for 20% of the world's olive oil, more than the second largest olive oil producing country, Italy. Uh, I'm just reading a Financial Times article I've got in front of me. Jaén <laughs> is responsible for 40% of Spain's olive oil and a fifth of the world's. Impeccable I think we can sourcing. keep this going. I think, I think we can keep this going until the end of the world, though. We'll just turn it into a, a province of Jaén olive oil podcast. We're also joined by Lionel Burney. Hello, Lionel. Hello, Richard. I'm wondering whether we're going to get somebody curating a collection of Spanish olive oils for us to um, sell in the cycling podcast shop. I'd, I'd certainly buy some. Yeah, it's an idea. I must add, chaps, that all of this talk stemmed from speculation about what caused that rather curious crash with about 50 kilometers to go today when a couple of riders unfortunately did a bit of a, a Johnny Hoogaland and ended in a, in a barbed wire fence Nelson Oliveira being one and Dylan Van Bala the other are actually awaiting news of both of those riders tonight and how badly injured they are but there was some talk that there was olive the, the roads were slippery because of the olive oil I, I don't see how that can can happen well olives can fall onto the road and then get squashed by cars and then hey presto you've got some extra virgin olive oil on the road surface no i mean it could happen it did look like a touch of wheels however doing <laughs> putting put, putting paid to the olive oil theory but the, the riders might might well feel that the roads are slippy but i don't think that was the cause of that crash it, it's a very 21st century cycling kind of problem isn't it you know once upon a time potholes and an engine oil used to cause crash, but oh no now it's extra virgin olive oil <laughs> it's just a sign of tapenade of, of tapenade <laughs> when they ride in provence <laughs> oh dear 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 we shouldn't we shouldn't be flippant about about what was a pretty nasty crash and uh one that affected quite a few um you know important riders in this race dylan van Baal as well finished last on the stage didn't he and he he looked to be in pretty bad way he's had a nasty crash at the vuelta before do you remember when he finished second on the stage a couple of years ago and he was one of the three riders who crashed into the race official just beyond the finish line and had to head home then as well so hopefully he's okay i was talking about that stage with a colleague the other day rich can you remember who won that stage i i haven't looked it, it up an 82 r rider genius i think I'll, I'll check that as we go but um but while i'm checking that lionel can you give us the uh the tale of the etapa please i can and indeed. it was genius it was genius oh well done breaking news it was guess who who was third that day mark padun oh we wow go. a very young mark padun it must yeah. have been Wait, yeah. how long ago was that 2019 or 2018 18 2018 well today back to the present back to the present stage 12 of the 2021 welter from Jaén to cordoba And, well, we're witnessing the three days of Magnus Court, really, aren't we? Because a couple of days ago, he featured in that big break. Yesterday, he was caught within touching distance of the line after another magnificent attack. And today, he won a bunch sprint, sort of going back to his day job, because his first couple of welter stages were bunch sprints, including, I think, one in Madrid. I think I'm right in saying... Yes, and what a sprint it was. I mean, it was uh, a, a sprint with some non-sprinters getting involved and certainly some non-lead-out experts getting involved. And, uh, well, well, we'll dissect the sprint um, a little bit later, but there were a couple of significant breaks before all that happened. It took a long time today for the break to go clear. Initially, there was a, an escape of three riders with 97 kilometers to go. They were Mikel Ituria of Uskaltel, Sebastian Beric of 
Israel startup nation. I hope I've said Berwick right. That's the, the kind of the British or Scottish uh, or North of England pronunciation of Berwick and Sander Arme of Quebec and they were then joined by Stander Wolf, Yetzabal, Amis Coeta, Maxim Van Kiels and Chad Hager of DSM on his 33rd birthday and they were away for quite a lot of the stage. UAE Team Emirates were doing most of the heavy lifting on the front of the peloton for Matteo Trentin who obviously fancied his chances for the stage. As you mentioned chaps there was that nasty crash on a bit of a descent with 55 kilometers to go the three teams worst affected Jumbo Visma, Ineos Grenadiers and Movistar all had riders on the ground and as you say Richard it was Nelson Oliveira who had some really badly shredded shorts and Dylan Van Bala who looked like they came off worse with 47 kilometers to go Ituria tried to go clear on his own but then he was caught and the gap was coming down uh, as they went through the finish line because they did a big finishing loop to go over the, the final climb. We saw Van Heels go ahead solo. Uh, behind him, uh, Jonathan Lastra, who was in the break yesterday, attacked the bunch, but everything was brought back together with 21 kilometers to go on the final climb. And then there was a, a second attack and a significant one. It featured the Zwift Academy winner, Jay Vine, uh, which, uh, well, he earned a contract with Alpacin Phoenix, didn't he, uh, by winning the Zwift Academy last year. He was joined by Giulio Ciccone of Trek Segafredo, and then Roman Bardet bridged up, and then finally Sergio Henao of Quebec joined them. So that was a quartet who were away. Significantly on the climb, Michael Matthews and Magnus Court were dropped and in a bit of difficulty. On the descent, Trentin's enthusiasm seemed to get the better of him a bit. He found himself off the front and was joined by Jon Izagire of Astana, and they didn't know really whether to go for it or not. They actually sat up as it flattened out. Then a fearless chase between the break, the quartet out in front, and the bunch. Uh, after Trentin and Izagire were caught. Bike Exchange were doing all of the chasing for Mike Matthews and with a couple of kilometres to go the lead was still 10 seconds and just as they came to the Flam Rouge with a kilometre to go Jay Vine used his power up uh, that's a Zwift joke, a Zwift well, reference, Well, I'd say with, the, with his late attack Lionel, I think he earned himself a, a new set of sunglasses and a <laughs> pair of track mitts Exactly, and he's, yeah and he's, moved, and he's moved up a level <laughs> It's funny, chaps. I was speaking to another rider this morning whose identity I won't disclose. It will be revealed in the next few days. For whom Swift was very instrumental in securing them a pro, uh, a world tour contract. In fact, it wasn't Jay Vine, was it, Daniel? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he looked he looked great, didn't he? I mean, he held them off um, for you know quite a quite a long time, as you say. Yeah, the, the new sunglasses didn't have time to, to see his new track mitts tomorrow. <laughs> He didn't have time to switch to the Tron bike. Maybe that would have been all the difference. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not joking about Zwift. I, you know, there's a serious story there about uh, getting a, a position in the pro peloton after impressing on in indoor cycling, static indoor cycling. Anyway, Vine was caught. And um, then we saw the sprint. It was a, quite an, an interesting one. We'll hear from Matteo Trentin about the, the run-in. But Bike Exchange did seem to lose control of it a little bit. Um, Magnus Court had his teammate Jens Kukalera, who Richard reminded me before we started recording, won a welter sprint finish in Bilbao a few years ago. Kukalera, well, it was the perfect lead out. Court came off his wheel, and although Andrea Bagioli of De Koenig Quickstep really pushed him very hard, the Dane held on to win, I mean, a really unlikely stage win, given what he did yesterday and how close he came to holding on on that really steep finish. So Magnus Court got his second stage win in the end. You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling, not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. 
Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. We're going to hear again from Asker Jurkendruk, the sports scientist and nutritionist for Jumbo Visma, and he also works with Super Sapiens. You can find out about Super Sapiens on their website, supersapiens.com. But let's hear from Asker about how this technology can help riders of all levels with their fueling and their training. Riders do see it as a potential game changer. But at the same time, they, they of course, want to have the answer straight away. And uh, I, I think we, we do need a little bit of time to collect uh, the data so we can give more meaningful uh, advice. And over time, you can see that, that riders will learn about how their body responds. It's not something that you're going to get after two weeks of wearing a sensor. You just need to wear it for longer. You need to do your own little experiments. And that sometimes also is not easy in free living conditions because glucose is influenced by what you eat. It is influenced by stress. It is influenced by your activity patterns or your training, but it's also influenced by the combination of those. For example, eating and training, the combined effect of that is different than the effects of eating alone and then uh, training alone. Well, Lionel, you said that Bike Exchange lost control in the final. They didn't really do much wrong, though, did they? I mean, it was a really impressive kind of full, I think they had the full team up there um, working to help Matthews and bring back a, a pretty strong breakaway um, that, 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 you know, had every possibility of staying clear. They, they looked strong. Bike Exchange had to do an awful lot to bring them back and really didn't do much wrong. It was it was a, a a moment of sort of improvised brilliance from Jens Kukeler, I thought, to, to go when he went because, I mean, he's a great sprinter in his own right. He's won a bunch sprint before. What a, what a, what a lead out man for Magnus Court to have. And he just jumped and got, got that little gap. Bagioli was, was kind of quick onto them, but Matthews just behind and couldn't close that gap. And you know, he looked absolutely distraught as he crossed the line because... His team had put so much effort into it and he's put an awful lot of effort into trying to win a stage at the Svelta and it just hasn't come off for him. No, I mean, you know, the conventional thing about a lead out is that the whole point is that the pace is supposed to be high enough to prevent those kind of moves, isn't it? I, I suppose. I mean, not taking anything away from Kukulera, but there was obviously a gain to be made and, and, and he read it perfectly judged it perfectly and executed perfectly and um, what I suppose fascinates me is given what Court did yesterday and that Kukulera is a decent sprinter in his own right I mean quite some trust being put in Court there to say you know he must have put his hand up and said look I can go for this I'm quick enough I'm strong enough to, to win this sprint finish. Well, Lionel, I, I actually got some intel on this from our colleague Hugo Kordovitz, who has who arrived a couple of days ago, the Het Newsblad writer, and he spoke to Jens Koikalera, gave him a call after the finish, and uh, indeed Magnus Court did, said that he, he didn't feel good, or he was telling Jens Koikalera throughout the stage that he wasn't feeling very good at all, and that Jens Koikalera should sprint, and Koikalera eventually convinced him that no, they should go for Magnus Court. Um, these two are very good friends and they rode together at Mitchelton Scott. In fact, Kukulera led out some sprints, I think, for Magnus Court when they were both there. And um, Kukulera said that he'd never been as emotional after after a, a race. Um, you know, he's won a lot of races himself, but he was absolutely thrilled that his teammate had, had won. And I just thought that... It was perhaps to their advantage that they didn't have many men EF Education First compared to Bike Exchange and UAE who had a lot of guys but they were not specialist lead out men. And it was quite simple actually what EF Education First did. Koikalera had picked his moment because the, the peloton had come through the finishing line and before it was a, it was a finishing lap today. Koikalera had, had identified the, the point um, the first time that he went through where he was going to launch the sprint about 600 to go or 650 and that's what he did and it was a really powerful lead out he did from there I mean that's that's further than a lead out man would usually go from but in these circumstances you know a reduced bunch um, not too many lead out trains around then um, yeah it did the job perfectly it was also slightly uphill in fact I'm sitting next to the the finishing straight at the moment and it's you know it goes up at 
I would say three or four percent. Very, very impressive. I agree. Magnus Court is just in terrific form, isn't he? And when you're in that sort of form, it's you can do anything. And the Vuelta is perhaps a race where somebody in that sort of form can be really handsomely rewarded because a lot of riders maybe aren't in great form. It's not a race that that, that an awful lot of riders actually really train for. You know. Um, uh, he rode the Tour de France as well, Magnus Court, and often when riders are in this kind of form at the Vuelta, it's almost Baxton. We saw that with Hugh Carthy last year. He almost said that, Rich, in the press conference after the stage. He said that he really did not expect to come here in particularly good form. Um, I think he'd had a fair amount of time. Not not off, but his training hadn't been that intensive between the Tour and the Vuelta, and he, he surprised himself in the first week that he, he really felt fantastic. He reminds me here of Matteo Trenton a few years ago when he came to the Vuelta in similar form and just couldn't stop winning. He was winning bunch sprints and it looked like he could just do just about anything. That was 2017 and Trenton uh, was one of the riders in contention today. His team also put an awful lot into the, the chase. Um, his team perhaps not got the sort of personnel that um bike exchange have for for setting him up but they they did their best didn't they today and you spoke to him at the finish daniel i did rich and what you'll hear first of all well i hope i hope this is bleeped out because there was some fairly colorful language from uh, matteo trentin but there was a very good natured moment where magnus court appeared alongside him that explains um Matteo Trentin sort of, well, expletive in his direction. And then we'll also hear from Joe Dombrowski, UAE rider, obviously a climber, um, about why the team decided to commit today and put so many resources into trying to bring the race back together for that sprint. This no. <laughs> We got just outclass. I mean, we got all the climbers in front. They did a, an amazing job for me, setting the tempo, wait for me when I was behind. And of course, it's not lead our team. <laughs> yeah, the guys of EF just timing perfectly. And I have to say, bike exchange up quite a lot in the last roundabout. It's it's racing. And if uh, if Nick Schuss was going straight, then maybe we're talking something else. But this is racing, and that's it. If someone on the GC was trying and taking some times, of course David has to has to manage his own thing. Yeah. To be honest, it was obvious they were going on the hard part. So. I just have to pace myself. I found Matthews on the way up. We just pace together. The Vuelta, from what I've seen, it always has like two types of climbs. Either they're quite fast and shallow, or they're like crazy steep. So either they're pa- climbs that the sprinters can sometimes pass, one that can climb, like Matteo, or uh, they really favor explosive riders. So we watched yesterday bike exchange try and pull for Matthews. I thought it was a little bit ambitious, but we thought today's climbs were a little bit easier. Actually, one of the hardest parts of the stage was the start because it took almost 90K for the break to go to try and control that because it's a lot more work for us if there's a group of 12 guys up front then it gets to be where with only three guys pulling, it's going to be difficult to bring it back. Well, Charles, that was interesting from Joe Dombrowski. I should also I should also inform you um, that, as well as the olive oil banter, there was some pretty puerile but quite funny talk about boom poles and the length of boom poles um, from Joe Dombrowski um, in the mix zone today. It was a, it was quite a job getting him to stop laughing and concentrate on what happened. Were, were they the being were they were they being uh, st- stuck up his nose or rather yeah. because there was a moment the other day where Sam Oman ha- ha- had to ask for it to be withdrawn ever so slightly because it, it did actually it was on on the verge of literally disappearing up his nose no i think it was it was even more immature than that rich the the chat so i think we should gloss over it <laughs> as regards trenton i don't know about you you guys but sometimes i do feel he's a bit impetuous and he doesn't trust himself enough and this was in stark contrast today uh with magnus court who really was was well, stayed 
hidden in the bunch and again you, you know as we said uh, daniel a hang ago, on hang on you're trying to say here that the italian was tempestuous and the, <laughs> and the dane the dane was ice cool this is this is this is this stereotyping is, is, that we don't indulge ground, in really groundbreaking some stuff. claim but yeah. i i i had flashbacks when trentin was was chasing those moves that that move by jon izaguirre and even the fact that david de la cruz went off the front um briefly on the final descent i had flashbacks to some of the San Ramos that Matteo Trentin has tried and not succeeded in winning when you know off the bottom or off the back of the Poggio he's often been distracted I mean I say often it's probably two or three times um, at most but he, he does you know I think it often he's so strong he, he's not a pure sprinter and he knows that he's got a couple of options in finales of 30 40 50 guys he has won races before i think he won a stage in the tour de france by going alone um in the finale of a stage so he, he has options he doesn't have to wait for the sprint but i think sometimes that might be to his detriment a little bit yeah caught between two uh, different approaches either of which would have been valid caught with between them caught between them <laughs> yeah magnus <laughs> core <laughs> but either of them would have been valid had they you know had full commitment i mean what do you think do you think when he found himself off the front it didn't look it looked like, like as you say daniel you know it's just his legs carried him away and 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 sudden because he was looking around a little bit the gap was open and he probably realized that it was it's quite a long push on from there on the flat he would need help he, you know the, there wasn't a group coming away and he was just sort of caught in the in the wrong place i mean probably you know, maybe it was just a sort of shove of the door to see whether it would it would up, fall open for him. I think it's a very shrewd analysis, though, because Trenton's because he's got options. It, it means he's got you know lots of decisions to make. And if he was just if he was Michael Matthews, it's it's fairly obvious that he um, his best chance of winning is to be taken to the the finish in a small group. Whereas Trenton, I mean, he won a he won a stage of the tour a couple of years ago with a long solo attack into gap, didn't he? He has won races from bunch sprints. He's won races alone. And so he can't, you know, it was feasible today that he might have bridged up to that breakaway and then won from that small group. That was perhaps as good a chance he had of winning as, as it being a bunch sprint. So having those options doesn't make his job easier. Yeah, and the best way I suppose I can describe it is by saying who he's not like and who he doesn't remind me of. And I would say it's someone like Oscar Freire, who, you know, obviously retired uh, a few years ago now, but he was someone who you didn't see until the, the final corner or the last 300 meters. Yet he was someone, and he, he illustrated this kind of ironically, his first big win um, was in the World Championships in 1999 in Verona when he came into the finish in a group of about eight, and he went with 600 meters to go, which with hindsight, he didn't need to do, didn't need to do at all. He could have waited for the sprint, but... For the rest of his career, Freire was an absolute master of knowing that he was probably strong enough to go away, whether it was solo on climbs or, or you know, in small groups. But he would generally wait for the right moment and wait for the sprint because he knew that if he did that and if he stayed in the wheel, stayed out of the wind, then he probably would be the fastest, particularly in smaller, you know, in sort of 80, 90, 100 man groups. Yeah, the other thing that was interesting in what uh, Matteo Trentin said about the running was uh, his sort of critique of bike exchange. I mean, I said they lost control in the uh, in the finishing straight, but he seemed to allude to them making perhaps some mistakes around a roundabout on the running. But we watched it back, didn't we, chaps? And I couldn't really see anything obvious. I mean, they're not going around perhaps full bore, taking the tightest possible line. They they did look like they went around a couple of turns quite wide. Um, but I couldn't really see anything that you could, you could say was a, you know, a cast iron obvious moment where they dropped the ball bike exchange. But um, it, yeah, I guess that's the the difficulty of trying to uh, lead out a, a very accomplished sprinter with perhaps a, a lead out train that that hasn't really worked together um, very much in the past. Some of them. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. 
Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thanks very much indeed to our longtime sponsor, Science in Sport, who are still offering you, the listeners, 25% off all your Science in Sport products. Go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout, enter the code SISCP25. Science of Sport offer a recycling service now, don't they, Lionel? Yeah, they do. You can send your wrappings, your packaging, back to um, Science and Sports partner for free, and it will be recycled. I mean, it's not uh, not a sort of widely recyclable material through traditional methods, apparently. But the plastic and aluminium layers from the gel wrappers are separated. The aluminium is then recovered for reprocessing. The plastics are then separated into gas and oil. The gas is used to power the whole process, and the oil can be used for future products or energy and so it means nothing's just being buried in landfill which has to be a good thing so um, if anyone needs any encouragement to just make sure they take their science and sport gel wrappers and bar wrappers and so on home with them when they're on a ride then I think that is it. Moving back onto today's stage and we're going to talk about the two top men on, on GC I suppose Enric Mass and Primoz Roglic another little scare for Roglic today with the crash but Mass is looks like the real danger to Roglic doesn't he and Daniel uh, a factor in that may be Patchy Vila the the sports director at Movistar now who joined the team last year from Bora Hansgrohe where he had a very good reputation uh, as a Somebody who was a, a good sort of coach and developer of talent. Mainly as a coach, wasn't it, Rich? He yeah, was, more as a he coach. He was coaching Peter Sagan. Mm. And he's he moved to, to Movistar last year and, and seemed to take a bit of a watching brief over the course of the year. It seems far more involved this year. And we're seeing it as well to a very strong Movistar performance, a very strong Enric Mass. Um, and you spoke to him at the start today. I did, Rich. I spoke to him about Enric Mass and how the Enric Mass of 2021 differs from the 2020 version. Patrick, you were mainly watching uh, the team last year at the Vuelta, I, I guess. Now you're in the first team car. Um, how much has Enric changed? How different is he from the Enric Mass who rode his first season with Movistar last year? We have changed some, some stuff around him. We kind of draw a plan and a, and a path for him to try to you know, fix the weakness, the weaknesses. I see yesterday you could see a difference in reg- regarding last year, you know, more punchy, you know, also more aggressive, sticking to the with pretty much also in the, in, the, in the race tactics, also, you know, being on the, where he has to be. So, uh, yeah, uh, we love developing riders and we love just making them better. I think uh, Movistar and Abarca, the... Uh, uh, and Eusebio Nzue, the owner, uh, probably is the, the man with more experience in Grand Tours uh, in the World Tour. And it's, it's amazing what you can learn from him and, uh, and how he can see things coming on the long way and the long run, you know. And simply we just try to, to okay, this is the rider now, this is the weakness, how can we fix this? And we've just, okay, step by step we go, you know, for example, this year, I think the Tour, Enrique, was much better than last year, but he had just two bad days, you know. Last year he was probably more consistent, more solid, but the, the level was even less. But we see also there in that too, we saw that was like kind of, uh, we see, uh, you know, a, a nice bright from him. So, okay, uh, then probably we could, we are on the way, you know. So, I mean, sometimes even if, if, if you could see, it seems like you're stepping backwards, you know, you need something, a step backwards just to, you know, to then make three or four frontwards, you know. Been a hot welter, and of course, last year the Grand Tours were at the end of the season, and they were, well, the weather was completely different. Is that an advantage as well for Emmerich? He seems to go well in this weather. Yeah, he he likes he loves warm conditions. He lives in in Mallorca, you know, where he's born there. So probably his summers in Mallorca were pretty hot when he was young. And I think that it's something you carry on with your life, you know. When you're you're exposed to, to some some weather conditions, that's something you have on your on uh, on your brain somewhere, and your muscles have also some kind of memory. So yeah, probably that's, that's a small point on our side. So that was Pachi Vila, chaps, really, well, telling us what we've already noticed, what we've already established, our, uh, I suppose, ourselves, that the Emric Mass of 2021 is more aggressive, he seems more confident. He's definitely the biggest threat to Primoz Roglic, I, I think. I think everyone agrees um, going forward. And, you know, I was, I was thinking about the stages to come earlier today, and there's a lot of... Well, there's a lot still to do for Primoz Roglic. So a couple of mountain stages um, coming in Extremadura, 
um, this week and then the, the two really big uh, Asturian mountain stages, Covadonga and El Gamonitero, the the new Angliru next week and there are there are a few other stages as well which could cause damage. I mentioned the one in Galicia on the penultimate day. So um, Mass is by no means out of it and neither is Superman Lopez. But I was speaking to some colleagues in the press room earlier and we were reflecting on the fact that um, sort of jokes aside and there's, there's a lot of kind of mirth about Movistar, most of it unfair, that the absence of, well, of Marc Soler first of all and then Alejandro Valverde uh, it strikes me that it's, it's kind of simplified things for Movistar because they're, they're sort of down to their bare bones as far as tactics are concerned they're down to uh, Carlos Verona sort of as the, the mountain domestique to a lesser extent Nelson Oliveira and then they've got Imanol Erviti and uh, Rojas as well who will look after the the two leaders, Superman and Mass, on the flat. But it doesn't really leave them many options. And where Movistar have sort of made people titter and 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 mock them over the past two or three years has been on those mixed stages when they've tried to send guys down the road, and particularly Soler, and people have been told to wait, and they've not wanted to wait, or they've done the wrong thing with Valverde. And what they've got to do here, I mean, I know today they had another blow with Oliveira, crashing and uh, well we hope that he heals up and and can be of service over the next few days but what they've got to do here is really very simple with only six men it, it perhaps limits them but it, it means that they've just got to follow Roglic and be there um, at the foot of the final climb and hope that Mass and Superman can outclimb him I mean that's how I see it I don't know about you guys so I saw someone ask on social media the other day um, whether anybody had taken Alejandro Valverde's seat in the, in the bus, that throne right behind the, the driver's seat. I don't know if you can find that out, Daniel. Um, just on mass, uh, on mass, not on mass, on Enric Mass, um, he, uh, you know, anybody who watched the Movistar Netflix series that we talk about a lot um, will have been struck by how serious he is how hard he is on himself as well you know that that came across in the second series um you know when he had that podium finish at the vuelta in 2018 he looked like being the the, the sort of spanish champion in waiting he was it was um it was alberto contador's last vuelta and it looked as if as contador was exiting the stage here was enric mass uh, ready to replace him he had another year with De Koenig quick step in 2019, but the deal was done pretty early for him to move to Movistar. 2019, he didn't make progress, didn't have a great season, and you wondered whether this this you know this star in whom Movistar were investing would actually uh, you know live up to that that billing. And and his his progress since then has been very gradual, but in a in a positive sort of direction. You know, 2020 was a good year for him and 2021 looks like being a better year for him on current form and I think that he is a really serious challenger to to Roglic that that was apparent yesterday on that climb up to the finish which was very short and you know it was a, was absolutely made for Roglic but Mass, Mass took him on and once we get to Lagos de Covadonga that on that sort of climb perhaps Mass and Lopez together could um combined quite well against Roglic there you know if 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 it's just the three of them and perhaps Jack Haig as well as as we sort of expect yeah I mean at some point Movistar are going to have to address the fact that there is a time trial to end this race and I know we've talked about you know maybe Roglic being a little bit vulnerable towards the end of races we've seen that before he's obviously lost the Tour de France in a mountain time trial right at the death to Tadej Pogacar last year but head to head Roglic has really got a, a serious edge over over um, Mass and an even bigger edge really historically over Lopez so Movistar have to nudge in front of him by, well, how much is, uh, you know, the second part of the question. First of all, they have to work out a way to try to get in front of Roglic on, on GC. And their best chances is going to be on the, the long, steady climbs, I guess. The, 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 you know, the, the ambush idea is, is the longest shot, especially as Movistar's um, resources are dwindling. Daniel, you say they're down to the bare bones. They, they really would be if Oliveira is... Um, 
you know, either unable to continue or unable to continue at the um, required level. So it's a it's a really big weekend coming up for Movistar. I think they need to start making that move on Saturday. Really, there's a a long uphill finish. Um, you know, it's straightforward racing. They've got to try and put Jumbo Visma and Roglic under some pressure and see if something gives, because otherwise they will start running out of, of days and they'll stand on the podium, perhaps at the finish in second and third place, wondering, well, what if we'd really turned the screw? I mean, it, it's so easy to say that, but they, they do have to get in front of him, don't they? Well, they, they do and they don't. I think it would be naive to think that second and third wouldn't be a fantastic result for Movistar, and I don't think they're going to risk everything. Um, to to try to dethrone Primoz Roglic, I really don't. Um, you know, we mentioned the, the 2015 Tour de France where they finished second and third with uh, Valverde and Quintana. Um, you know, it's a team that that targets general classification generally, where well, famously, infamously targets team classification as well. But they're not a team that looks at the number of wins they've had at the end of the season and. Um, you know, I think if they are big factors in the race, which they have been up until this point, and if on a personal de- developmental level, Superman and Enric Mass, who are the future of this team, Superman has, has just signed on for another two years and, and Mass has got a long-term contract. Um, if, they're, if, if they're moving forward, then I think they'll be happy. I mean, already I think Mass has allayed some of their what might have been their fears that he's plateaued stagnating um, at the Tour de France you know he looked able to follow until well until there were five or six guys left and then he would always get dropped and he wasn't really able to affect the race in the mountains on the front end and that's changed here and I think as Rich said that's a flashback that's a reminder of, of the mass we first saw in 2018 and I think that's the one that they invested in that's the one and um, they believed was going to be the next Alberto Contador the next big star in Spanish cycling so I think you know they'll be absolutely thrilled that he's back on that path he's flying the flag for Spanish cycling at the moment there hasn't there hasn't been a Spanish stage win in this Vuelta yet so you know a lot of a lot of Spanish hopes invested in mass and um, perhaps to become the first Spanish stage winner in this race as well He's also impressed me, chaps, at this Vuelta by being a lot cheerier than in the past couple of years. Um, Rich, you said he's a very—he seems a very serious character, you know, on the team bus and when it comes to racing. And uh, I remember speaking to Carlos Verona earlier in the year, and he he confirmed that the mass is, you know, he's very focused and and he can be quite sort of poker faced at times. But he's been in good mood with the media. Um, well, as have a few riders here, chaps, and um, Primoz Roglic being the being the most flagrant example um maybe we should have the daily rog maybe we should hear from primos hear what he had to say this morning in where were we this one Hayen. and and pre I, I should just say that roglic is being asked a lot this is a bit meta he's he's being asked a lot about why he is is in such a good mood um at the vuelta and he's invariably responding you know in in a very good natured fashion <laughs> as he did this morning I don't know. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, I don't care actually. Uh, now I'm here. Uh, I try to enjoy. Try to do my best. Uh, and yeah, we see, we see how far and what we can achieve. When you force it, it's hard to achieve it. Uh, so it has to come naturally that you come and uh, yeah, you just enjoy it. Primoz, is this the Grand Tour where you feel most at home? Is it your favorite one because of the roads? I don't know the weather, the people. It seems like yeah. <laughs> I don't want uh, never to really pick this and this and this, but yeah, obviously it seems like uh, yeah, uh, as uh, looking on results, definitely uh, I like Vuelta. Back in in the past, the Spanish fans they used to hate foreign riders. They used to spit at them, throw things at them, but they seem to like you. Hopefully, yeah, uh, at least I like them. Uh, it's nice. The people, yes, uh, give uh, gives us great support. So uh, yeah, uh, we are enjoying it. So there you go, chaps. The the rog stand up tour of France, continue uh, France, Spain. I mean, be, being asked if you're in a, in a good mood is likely to put you in a good mood, isn't it? Like being asked why are you in a bad mood is is likely to put you in a bad mood. So there's a sort of virtuous yeah. circle there. He still manages to stay true to character, and he still adds that sort of stoical. I don't, uh, I don't really care, huh? I don't really care if I'm in a good mood, huh? <laughs> 
I mean, Rog, Rog will be even more delighted and in an even better mood when he hears your analysis, Daniel, and realises that Movistar are just playing for an, a, you know, a home <laughs> draw. I mentioned Mass not being the most sort of um, expansive interviewee earlier, but it's easy. Well, I think none of us forget because some of us were slightly traumatised by how difficult it used to be just two or three years ago to interview Primoz Roglic and... And it's a real credit to him and a credit to his team as well, Jumbo Visma, um, for the way they have have managed him and eased him into what is part of his job and has become a, a bigger and bigger part of his job because he spent so much time in leaders' jerseys um, having to attend to the post-race protocol. It's a sort of case study if that you would show young riders who don't find that part of the job easy, and a lot of them don't, uh, how just by taking yourself out of your comfort zone and just exposing yourself to it and and trying to be good-natured in interviews and um, it really takes the stress out of it and it and rog you know appears every morning he sits on his crossbar crossbar that's not a top tube i'm supposed to call it um, he sits on his top tube and he, he, he just holds court and you know he does so with a smile on his face and um it's it's in stark contrast to the rog of of two or three years ago and as I say I think it's removed a lot of unnecessary stress from his existence as a perennial leader of Grand Tours. In those years of, of Rog being the, the toughest interview his teammates and people on the team always said how funny and relaxed he was behind closed doors and I think over time he's just gradually revealed a bit more of that self and um, perhaps he feels more confident perhaps he sees familiar faces you know that he has developed a bit of rapport with i don't know but um he's also been put in that position uh, so much now um you know put in front of microphones and cameras that um maybe it was inevitable that 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 self that he has has shown to his teammates has uh, has has become more apparent has sort of come out there are some riders, chaps, though, aren't there? And you guys know this um, all too well. That there are some riders who riders who never soften. And there are some that get worse as they get as they get older. Yes. And <laughs> and again, we've talked about the the benefit, the sort of sweet spot. I think of being f from where he's from, from Slovenia. And I I just get the sense that the the media attention and also the public attention adulation from Slovenia is at a very sort of beneficial um quite enjoyable level for for rog um it, it doesn't it doesn't lurch into sort of un, unpleasant scrutiny but i think i think um, also it, though it, daniel um you know something that became apparent to me was was how how people in slovenia um his main constituency perhaps have really embraced the rog as you know and his reputation was perhaps confirmed at the tour last year the tour that he lost um the guy who overcomes adversity who recovers from great disappointments and setbacks who never who never gives up who keeps trying and you know in that little interview i had with him in the other slovenians the uh, kilometer zero that we put out last week it was quite interesting that he said that he he recognized that his popularity owes quite a lot to people relating to that story and connecting with it and he seemed quite conscious of that, that that people and even the other day, you know, when he when he crashed and he was very stoic about it and almost upbeat about it, it was almost another chapter in the in the now familiar Roglic story of um, it never being being plain sailing. There are always being setbacks, wobbles in the road that he has to overcome. That's part of who he is, and it's part of the story that he recognizes people like in him. The other thing that I find interesting rich you mentioned that stoicism it's kind of of the time but also not in the sense that um, often sports men and women um, particularly at the moment are are lauded for showing their vulnerability but on the other hand there's part of of the public or part of our sensibilities that also hankers for craves um or or, or really admires someone who um is bulletproof and who i mean Roglic has also shown some vulnerability. He's shown vulnerability in his performances, but in terms of his his attitude and the way he he bounces back from from adversity, uh, I, I think there's there's a, a part of all of us who would like to 
integrate and assimilate a bit more of that, you know, roglicism into our own lives. Well, uh, uh, of course, Kate Wagner has written extensively about about this, um, and and let's not forget too that he lost the Tour de France in agonizing fashion last year, but. In, in the moment of that defeat, in the moment of his most crushing disappointment, he reacted with, with great grace and humanity um, towards um, his, his vanquisher, Tadej Pogacar. You know, the, the way that he responded was um, reflected very well on him. And I think that also was, uh, is something that, that made people, more people warm to him. Well, Daniel, somebody who has um, shown vulnerability uh, is Gino Mader. And we hear a bit of that in the interview that we're about to hear from him that you uh, that you did with him. Yes, Rich, I spoke to Gino, caught up with him, our old audio diary, of course, our audio diary at the Giro, which for him was sadly curtailed by a crash. But I caught up with him in Roquetas de Mar, uh, surrounded by all of those greenhouses we talked about the other day. Um, it's been a great... Vuelta España for Gino Maida, who I must admit really impressed me at the Vuelta last year when he was still riding for NTT, switched to Bahrain Victorious this year, and he is, well, he's a vital cog in the Bahrain Victorious machine, um, helping Jack Haig on, on the mountain stages, but also managing to stay well up there on general classification. In fact, he's 13th. I spoke to him a couple of days ago, as I said, about his welter so far and whether his role had changed after Mikel Landa's difficult day on the Alto de Velefique. I guess yesterday you guys had a little bit of a, well, you reassessed things about tactics and did anything change? Does anything change for you personally and what your job is going to be? Same job as beginning of the race, just different rider. I, I'll try to protect, but same game for me. And I guess you, you're really happy with the way the welt has gone so far. I mean, how much do you think you've grown just in the last three or four months? I think the most uh, has actually happened the last like two years when I had a lot of injuries, also being sick and missing a lot of part. And there has most of my growing has actually been done there, and now just. The last few months I got more stable, like like things have just been more stable for me and uh, that you know, shows, shows in, in the results and uh, kind of nice. And confidence, I guess, from the outside looking in, seems like everyone in the team is very confident and you have probably become more confident as well in the last three or four months. You know that you belong here. Some days I do, others I don't. Like, take stage six, I was just struggling all day. I was suffering so much to, yeah, be there. I lose one and a half minutes in a 2k climb which which is a lot by by all means and then you have stages like uh, Sunday when I when I can do my job when I can stay with my mates I feel I'm I'm where I belong to and uh, no, it's nice it's nice to have good days well interesting to hear from Gino Mader what I meant when I said about his vulnerability is it's, it's quite rare to hear a rider who's in you know fighting for the top 10 really he's not too far off a top 10 position you know from the outside it looks like he's having a great welter riding very strongly but he admitted there to you know almost having a bit of imposter syndrome himself on days wondering whether he really does belong up there and it's it's always interesting to hear a rider or any athlete admit that i I bring that out of riders rich you know i touch their most their most tender nerves (laughs) you you get on their nerves you said you (laughs) yeah yeah it's something you're famous for, Daniel. It's great that you were able to carve Gino Mader open like that and, and and let him. Who are you gonna Who are you gonna tackle tomorrow? Well, I don't know. But talking of carving things open, I'm looking forward to sampling some local cuisine tonight oh, in Cordoba. Nice segue. Of course. Oh yeah, there we go. Class. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm looking forward to trying these flamenquines cordobeses. Flam, flamenco. You'll you'll recognise the root of that flam flamenquines. Um, various different theories about where the name comes from but they're kind of like Lionel you've had cachopo before haven't you in Asturias mm. um, you can probably you can probably describe it better than me it's what is it is, is it cordon bleu is it referred to as cordon it's kind bleu of, isn't it? it's very in thin, thinly sliced steak that then is uh, crumbed bread crumbed isn't it and it's got cheese and ham on the top so it's it's uh, yeah it's uh, there sort you of go. An, an after an after a cider type meal really rather than a sort of 
gourmet dinner. It's a bit of a kebab shop there type you go. Fare, really, isn't it? I mean, it's enjoyable in, in the right setting. I learned today that Cordoba has a, a sort of equivalent, these flamenquines, which are kind of like a cachopo cross with a, a Swiss roll or an Arctic roll. It's got jam in it or it's rolled up? No, they're rolled up. <laughs> it's pork meat, um, not veal, and but it's got kind of rolls of ham on ham through it and it's also in breadcrumbs and fried doesn't sound very appetizing but it comes in a in a long sort of roll um a long sphere and i i think one of the theories about why it's called the flamenquin is that these look like the legs of flamenco flamingos you say in english don't you flamingos and have you managed flamingos have you managed yet flamingos have flamingos. you managed yet? Flamingos. <laughs> flamingos. Have you managed uh, to have any vegetables yet in Spain, Daniel? Oh, it's a, it's a struggle. It's a real struggle every every day, every night. Um, not much fiber, not much greenery. I must admit, mm. uh, no. most of the vegetable and fruit content that we consume comes from wine. I must admit, uh, wine <laughs> and olive oil. Some of that high end. I don't know if that goes that towards high. your five a day. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's a nice I was try. hoping. I was hoping, chaps, um, as I teased in last night's episode, to bump into my old chum and idol, Pavel Tonkov, today. And I was hoping that he might be able to advise me on Cordoba cuisine. But no sign of Pavel Tonkov, of course, the 1996 Giro d'Italia champion, who formerly owned a hotel in... Cordoba, in the centre of Cordoba, very near where I'm staying tonight, near the Mesquita, the big, the Grand Mosque, the old Grand Mosque. Um, but as we said yesterday, um, alas, Pavel has has sold up. Sold up and gone. Well, Daniel, we'll leave you to your fruitless search for fruit and veg, and uh, in, enjoy your enjoy your, your ham on. Um, there's lots of that, obviously. Um, and we'll reconvene tomorrow evening just a very quick one rich sorry just a very quick one because uh, daniel you were quite anxious to get our latest kilometer zero about fabio aru out uh, last oh, yes. night weren't you um the 2015 welter champion riding his last grand tour before retirement and well, he's, he's had an upset stomach maybe he's had some of the um the flamenco <laughs> um for dinner i don't know but he's tumbled down the gc a bit over the last uh, three days hasn't he lost a bit of time every day he did finish today um, but he is now lying in 25th position um, and well hopefully he will be able to see it through to the end of the welter which reminds me chaps I, I bumped into Matt Winston the direct sportif at DSM this morning and asked him whether today could be another day for Michael Storer at the Cycling Pele uh, Michael two Two stage wins already for him, and, and Matt sort of winked at me and said, not today, not today. And this reminded me of how successfully DSM employed this strategy of giving giving their riders kind of rest days in the race um, in the Tour de France last year. And then I, I saw Stora coming quite a long way down today, so I think he'd taken it pretty easy. And Michael Stora, I'm pretty sure... I'm confident he's going to win another stage and he's going to make it three before the end of this one. Sunday. Five double stage winners, aren't there, so far? Uh, I mean, so 12 stages and five of, 10 of them by just five riders. Let's wrap things up for uh, for tonight, shall we? And we'll reconvene tomorrow. Perhaps a sprint stage tomorrow, are we expecting? Definitely a sprint stage, chaps. Great. Well, looking forward to that. And uh, we'll join you again tomorrow evening, Daniel. Um, I must say enjoyed the Fabio Aru kilometre zero immensely Matthew Trenton who we've spoken about quite a lot in this episode is excellent in that really talking about some of the pressures facing riders now and talking about Aru as well um, really interesting stuff from him we hear from Aru as well tomorrow's kilometre zero I think will be um, with Tim Moore the author of Vuelta Skelter the, his retelling of the 1941 Vuelta it's a fascinating story and uh, there's lots of about the Spanish Civil War in there as well so that's coming tomorrow but in the meantime thank you very much Daniel thank you chaps thank you Lionel thank you